So I've been walking around IMS this afternoon, walking around the grounds, and it's just as though something inside me settles. It feels very deep, and it's from being here for a long time and from practicing here. So I have a lot of gratitude to be here at IMS in this moment. I'm not going to talk about gratitude. I'm going to talk about self-judgment and how we work with judgments and how we move from self-judgment to being ourselves. So since you've been sitting on the cushion, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of judgment towards yourself. There's the ongoing, I'm a terrible meditator, the person next to me is better than me, I'm better than the person in front of me, oh no, what if I get sick, I'm bad, I'm imagining these. I've had all of these. And I also know that um, when we're home, we have ongoing sense of judgments that come. Um, I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I'm not attractive. I'm bad at school. I'm good at school. I'm um, Ongoing voices, automatic pilot in our head all the time, talking about how we are. And it can feel really horrible. One young, young, um, 14-year-old boy told me that every time he does well, I mean, he doesn't do well on a test, a voice inside his head says, you're so stupid. I wonder if you can relate to this. So where do these voices come from? These are the voices that have been conditioned into us. They're in our, they may be from our family. They may have been people... um, you know, our mother or father saying things like, oh, you'll never be as good as your older sister. Or maybe they're from our peers, our friends, or school, or teachers. And then also we live in this culture that's incredibly superficial. We live in a culture where there's a constant emphasis on what we look like, We're supposed to be thin and beautiful and successful and rich and powerful. And these are the messages we get all the time. It's um, sometimes really hard because most most of us don't fit the standards that are supposed to be what society wants us to be. So... The, I want to differentiate judgment from discernment. So what we do often is, I'm bad, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm, unha- I'm the unhappiest kid in the whole school, I'll never get into college, I'm going to get into a bad college. I mean, this goes on and on, right? It's, like a, it's kind of like a, a little voice in the head that just doesn't seem to stop. Now, it's different than discernment. Discernment is something that recognizes what is happening and knows it to be what it is. So if we, um, for instance, if you say, if you get on a scale and you look at your, your weight and you say, okay, I weigh 110 pounds, that's discernment. That's not a judgment. That's just discerning. But if you get on the scale and you see, I weigh 110 pounds, and then you say, 
Oh no, I'm horrible, I'm fat, I'm disgusting, I weigh 110 pounds. That's a judgment. Okay? We have to be careful because at times we just um, we recognize things and we know them to be true. And then it's different when there's this slight layer of aversion or wanting it to be different or hating ourselves. If somebody said to you, you are stupid and mean, I don't like you, you would probably be shocked that someone would say something like that. But rarely are we shocked when we say it to ourselves. Actually, we say it to ourselves a lot, and we don't even really care. We just think it's normal. So as I mentioned, here we are on retreat, and we're in this kind of laboratory, and we get to experience what's happening in our bodies and minds. And retreats are an incredible place to look at self-judgment. As I said, you'll be noticing, huh, that yogi sitting next to me is much better than me. Or that yogi sitting next to me is wearing much nicer clothes than I'm wearing. Or comparing yourself to last year. Last year, I was a much better meditator than I was, than I am now. Or comparing one meditation setting to the next. How about that one? This meditation, it's not as good. I'm really bad. I'm getting worse. How come it seems like we're getting worse all the time when we practice? This is comparing mind. It's judging. It's self-judgment. Or sometimes we compare it to our imagination of what it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to come to IMS and all my problems will be solved. I'll figure out everything about my life and um, everyone will love me. And then it's not happening and then we feel bad. So we, get, we feel bad because of ideas. We feel bad because of comparison. We feel bad because of things that have happened in the past. The Buddha had a word that he ca- it's called mana. M-A-N-A. And this word means comparison or pride or ego. And so every time there's a sense of I'm greater than, I'm lesser than, or I'm equal to, then there's pride or ego coming up in the mind. Now the thing that I find so interesting about this is that 2,500 years ago when the Buddha was alive, people were judging themselves and they were judging others and they were comparing themselves to others. So when I remember this, I think, oh, actually it's kind of normal. Everybody does it. So how do we work with these judgments? The first thing is when we're sitting, we're in a kind of laboratory we can become aware of our minds. And we can become aware of these judgments. So every time you see one go by, oh, there's a judgment. Wow, I'm, uh, got to think of a good one. I'm a terrible yogi today because I, I wanted to sleep the whole time. Oh, there's a judgment. That's interesting. When a judgment comes up, it's really useful to notice what it feels like in the body. 
where, how does it feel? Is it, it, there's often a tightening feeling. I know when I feel judgmental of myself, I often feel a kind of pain or a burning in my stomach. And then that can become an object of meditation. That can become something to pay attention to. So we take interest in the judgments. We, we feel it. If it's painful, which it often is, it can feel sad. Oh, there's me judging myself again. Wow. The second way to, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the second way to work with it is um, what we've been talking about all along, remembering impermanence. This is one of the major teachings of the Buddha, the teaching of impermanence. So we see this as we practice. We see that we don't stay the same from moment to moment, that our minds and our thoughts and our body sensations and our breath is always changing. So if we can remember impermanence, we can remember that we're not always this way. We're not always bad. We're not always ugly. We're not always fat or thin or whatever it is. It's impossible. We're not even always judging. In fact, a lot of the time, we don't have much self-hatred or judgment going on. Things are pretty good. So if we can remember impermanence, it really helps. The third way to work with it that I find helpful is to count judgments. So Rebecca mentioned last night that one way to work with persistent thoughts is to notice them and give them a label, like planning, or um, if, it's, if it's a specific kind, like there's the boyfriend thought, or there's the girlfriend thought, or whatever it is. What you, can, you can take it a step further with judging. You can say judging one, judging two, judging, and you can just keep going, noticing. Now, careful to distinguish between discernment, my leg is asleep, from I'm, so, I'm such a bad yogi, my leg is asleep, okay? So you can, you can actually count, and by the time you get up to 500, and it's only the third sitting of the day, you might start thinking it's a little amusing. I gave this exercise to some younger uh, girls who were um, about 12, and we talked about judgment, and I said, why don't you learn, why don't you practice counting the judgments that you experience in your daily life? And I only see them once a month. So I sort of forgot about the exercise, and I came back the next month, and one of the girls said to me, the first thing she said to me was, 1,612. (laughs) And I said, what? I didn't even know what she was talking about. And she said, I've been counting judgments. So she apparently went to school and started counting her own judgments, but then she started counting her friends' judgments. And then she was in her classes, and anytime anybody made a judgment, she would count it out loud. So she spent the entire month at school counting judgments. And I just thought that was amazing, that she was that mindful and aware Another way to work with judgments is to um, add a phrase to them, okay? Add something to remind you that it's just a thought because a judgment in our mind is just a thought. I'm not good enough is just a thought. 
it's a little different than um, I'm a boy or I'm a girl because it has a charge to it. But it really is just a thought and you've seen that in your practice. You've seen that every moment that you're aware of a thought that comes and goes. And many of you have told me that you've seen this on this retreat. There's a thought coming, I become aware of it, and it goes. So adding a phrase can be helpful. A few years ago, I had a friend who was meditating here at IMS on a three-month retreat. And she was caught in incredible self-judgment. She was just having this horrible, horrible time judging herself and just thinking she's a terrible meditator. And she was doing a lot of walking meditation outside. Now, you know how there's all those little chipmunks that come outside when you're walking and they kind of come up to you. So she was doing walking meditation and a chipmunk came. It got really close to her and then it ran away. And the next thing she thought was, even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And she got so upset, and she went in to see her teacher. And and she said, oh, I'm a horrible meditator. I can't do it. I'm a bad person. Even the chipmunks hate me. And her teacher, who was Joseph, actually looked at her and said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. It's just a phrase. It's a thought. It's a thought. The sky is blue. And so that became our mantra. She told me about it. So we'd walk around saying, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. <laughs> we would, but we would remember that when we would get all judgmental of ourselves. Oh, I feel, you know, whatever it is. Oh, I have to give a talk. They're probably going to hate it. Even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> the sky is blue. <laughs> and it would take the charge out of it. Finally, we need to remember to be careful about judging, judging. So we're sitting meditating and suddenly a thought comes in, God, that person who's sitting in front of me has been sitting so still, and I haven't been sitting still. I'm not a very good yogi. And then the next thought is, "Uh uh-oh, that was a judgment. Diana told me last night I shouldn't judge, so um, that was bad of me. Oh no, I'm I'm, I'm judging that I'm judging, and then I'm judging, you know, it can go on and on and on. So try to be aware of the judging of the judging. And that can be really helpful if you can notice the layers, one on top of the other, and sort of notice each one. And then sometimes in the noticing, it shifts. Acceptance of ourselves is at the core of mindfulness. I know we've been talking a lot about acceptance on this retreat, and I'm going to clarify it in a moment some. But I really want you to get this essential piece of the practice, which is that we can't be mindful if we don't accept some piece of ourself. If we're doing that, it's a fake kind of mindfulness. It's a, it's a sort of I can be with this, okay, I'm going to grit my teeth, and yeah, I can be with the knee pain. That's not mindfulness, because there's no acceptance there. It's like a pretend acceptance. There's actually aversion, or or not wanting, as Rebecca said, trying to push away the experience. But the more that we practice, the more that we can accept ourselves. 
And that's really, that's really the amazing thing about the practice. So we need self-acceptance in order to practice, but then as we practice, we develop it. So it works in this really lovely circle. One of the questions people often ask me is, but what if my judgment is right? I am a little lazy, you know. I should have gotten up for that sit this morning. (laughs) It's important to distinguish self-acceptance or acceptance itself from passivity. And this is something that's come up quite a bit in our groups or some groups When we talk about acceptance, we're not talking about a quality of mind that we might think of as complacency or passivity. Okay, I'll just accept things as they are. We're talking about a quality of mind that sees things clearly, and that's why it accepts things. So you can hate yourself and want to change something about yourself, Or you can see yourself clearly and want to change something about yourself. And these are really two very different things. Someone today in my group said, maybe a better word for acceptance is understanding. And I really like that because they're so closely related. Sometimes when we hear acceptance, we think, oh, we just give up. And it's really important that we don't give up, particularly when we think about the situation in the world where things are difficult and we don't agree with things, for instance, the government might do or we feel angry about injustice. We wouldn't just say to you, I would not say to you, well, you should just accept it. If things shouldn't be this way, they wouldn't be this way, which is sort of an easy kind of exit out. But actually, acceptance understands. And acceptance understands when there is injustice. And acceptance understands when um, you need to act to work for change or to make a change inside yourself or to get out of a relationship where you're finding a lot of pain or not getting what you need. So acceptance has wisdom with it. And when we can accept, we can act with love and compassion rather than acting out of fear and anger. And this works in all areas of our lives. One aspect of this self-hatred is the sense that I'm not good enough as I am. And it's, an, it's, it's inside a lot of us, this feeling kind of deep down inside, like, oh, you know, really, I'm just, I'm just not good. And oftentimes it's attached to this, to why we want to fit in. I mean, there's a, there's a strong sense that many of us feel of, I need to fit in. I mean, that's in some ways what high school is about, fitting in. Even if it's fitting in with the crowd that's different, it's fitting in. And it's not just high school, it's all of us. I mean, we all experience the wanting to be liked. And then oftentimes we find that we have to, we think we have to cut off pieces of ourselves in order to be loved or accepted. 
When I first got involved with Buddhist practice, I was a lot younger than most of the people. I was in my early 20s, than most of the people I was practicing with when I first came here. And um, immediately I developed all these ideas about what it meant to be a Buddhist. So I'm watching everybody. Everybody's very quiet on a meditation retreat, so I thought, oh, I have to be quiet. Yes, I have to be quiet on a meditation retreat, but I thought that I had to be quiet at home to be a good Buddhist. And I thought that I couldn't get angry because Buddhists are not supposed to get angry. And I thought that I couldn't be passionate, and I thought that I couldn't be political, and I thought that all of these things that really made up me weren't good enough because um, I was trying really hard to fit in and to be a good Buddhist. When, um, a few years ago, I went to Burma to practice, and actually some of you were there with me, and some of you have gone since, and it's a pretty extraordinary place to be, to meditate intensively. And I went there and I ordained as a Buddhist nun, and then I thought I was being a really good Buddhist, because I had no hair, (laughs) and because I wore robes, and I had renounced everything. And... um, was living in a far-off country with, with um, lots of snakes and spiders and things. They had spiders that were this big, I'm not kidding, the size of my hand. And um, I was sick a lot, and I was, um, I was homesick a lot. And it was, a, it was also an incredible experience. And I know that some of you have talked about the desire to maybe do that someday. And I strongly encourage it if you feel that desire. But when I was there, I really pushed myself very, very hard because I was trying to be the best Buddhist I could possibly be. I was trying to reach the highest enlightenment I could find. I was really, really um, pushing myself. And what happened was, after many months, I came up against a pretty big wall. I found that I couldn't meditate in the way that I was meditating because because what happened was so much doubt and self-hatred was coming up. And it was a very interesting thing for me because I was, I was surprised by it. But I'm doing all the right things. I'm being, a good, I'm being a good person. I'm following my spiritual path. How is it that there's all this doubt and self-hatred and all this judgment? I thought I was the worst meditator ever in the history of all of meditation. <laughs> so what happened was I had to teach myself that I had to think I was okay, that I couldn't progress any further in my practice until I actually learned to like myself. And my, all my notions about being a good Buddhist were about trying to get out of being me. I didn't want to be me. I felt like I had to be someone else in order to be liked and in order to fit in. So I began to do a practice that had to do with self-acceptance. And it meant um, a lot of metta, like you've been learning, and compassion practice. And sometimes 
I would just say to myself, you're good, you're okay, you're good. And sometimes I would even pat myself and say, oh, you're good. And I learned. And of course, by learning this, had a, learning that it was okay to be me exactly as I was, that's when I could practice more traditionally in a way. That's when I could keep, um, keep going with the mindfulness and really be present to my experience. So, like I said earlier, we have to love ourselves or we can't practice. But the good news is practice teaches us to love ourselves. The thing that I learned and I really want to pass to you is that I'm okay exactly as I am. And all of you are okay exactly as you are. You can be loud-mouthed and opinionated and silly and into punk rock and like reggae and whatever is you. You are you. And that is, that is in some ways, when you step into who you are fully, you are embracing your spirituality. You, by not cutting off pieces of yourself, you're not doing violence to yourself. It's a kind of violence to say, I can't be me. And our culture wants us to not be me. They want us to, it wants us to fit into boxes of who we're supposed to be. So I don't imagine um, many of you identify as Buddhists, but people who are on a spiritual path, I just, I want to convey that um, this path is really, it's not supposed to make you into a zombie or someone with no emotions or someone who's good all the time or perfect or anything like that. The practice is about fully stepping into who you are and bringing in our mindfulness and our awareness and our ethics practice, the precepts. And when we have these as a foundation, we can fully be who we are and then the world benefits. This is a quote that um, probably many of you have heard, but I love it, and I can hear it many times. It's from Martha Graham, dancer. She said, There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium, and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It's not your business to determine how good it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. So fully being you is part of our spiritual practice. And as we become aware of how we judge ourselves and it begins to lessen and soften, the goodness of who we are comes to the surface. I like to call it our inner goodness. It's, it's the thing inside us that knows that actually we are good. 
And no matter how messed up we feel or how many problems we have or how we think we've done something horrible or whatever it is, it's inside us, this bright radiance of who we are. It's real and it's true. And meditation will bring us in touch with that. And you will see it. You will have moments when you're practicing where suddenly it's like, everything's okay. And you just know it and you drop in to this sense of just being alive. And it's what Rebecca has been talking about, this happiness, happiness that's not dependent upon all sorts of things, but just the happiness that comes from being alive and present in this moment. And you might feel it when you're doing sports, or you might feel it when you're taking a walk in nature, or you might feel it when you fall in love, or you might feel it in all sorts of situations in your life. It's the truth of who you are, and this practice helps us touch into it, and that's the gift. This is a quote from a young adult on this retreat from a number of years ago. She said, After meditating for a while, I began to notice those self-hating voices that I wasn't thin enough. My thighs have been too fat since I was 11. But lately, I've begun to not take them so seriously. So she said this to me after going on about five young adult retreats. Lately, I've begun to not take them so seriously. The other day, when I looked in the mirror and a voice said, ugly, I just laughed and said, you're a voice in my head. Now I can look in the mirror and actually like what I see. So let's take, let's sit for a little bit. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Insight Meditation Society on June 23, 2002. It is an offering of the